0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. All right, so uh, let us see what the uh, evening brings. Uh, Lots of questions. It's always a good sign people are engaging, which is is wonderful. So... um, (laughs) <laughs> okay, so first one, dear, Ajay, any advice on how to quit mobile phone addiction? Thank you <laughs> This is good questions. These are very practical down to earth realistic questions yeah there 's no kind of messing around and that 's good uh, because these are other things that we have to deal with so a few things is to kind of cut down so there's no kind of uh, notices or whatever coming into your phone. Yeah, Just Turn off all notifications. That's kind of number one. Yeah, So you never know if anything has arrived or not uh, until you look at it. You decide when you look at the phone, you don't allow the phone to boss you around. Uh. The other thing you can do is, which apparently is quite good, is to, you can choose the kind of settings on your phone to make it look really drab. Yeah. <laughs> And apparently that's quite powerful as you can make it into this kind of gray kind of phone with no colors and nothing like that. So the whole display is drab and boring. And that apparently is helpful. It makes it much more interesting to see what's going on. And so look at the settings and maybe some options like that. A third thing you can do is decide a timeout in the evening Yeah. So in the evening after a certain time, you put your phone out of range, either give it to someone else in the household to look after or, uh, you know, ask them to hide it somewhere you can't find it or whatever. And then you have a kind of a starting point in the morning. You don't start until a certain time in the morning. Don't bring the mobile phone into your bedroom. Don't use a mobile phone as an alarm clock. Have a separate alarm clock. Yeah. Otherwise, you have a problem. Yeah. Try some of those tricks. Last trick, the best trick of all, get rid of a mobile phone altogether. (laughs) Venerable Sir, I listened to Ajahn Brahm's talk about death on YouTube. Uh, He said something like, when we die, good thoughts leads to good karma, bad thoughts lead to bad karma. Um, I know someone who is very stingy, critical, and judgmental, but thinks he is very holy and saintly and above everyone. Uh, what will happen when he dies? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> it's, so, good thoughts. Yeah, the, the idea is that if you die with good thoughts, then there are good karma is likely to ripen. Yeah? It doesn't actually matter so much exactly what thoughts you have when you die because dying is a process. It's not something, it's not kind of the traditional Theravadan way of thinking about dying. It's like there's a last thought moment and there's a next, which links to the last thought moment. If your last thought moment isn't right, uh, then you are doomed in your next life. Uh, <laughs> Actually it is not as simple as that. It's very clear according to the suttas that there is something called an intermediate existence. So exactly your thoughts when you die are not that important actually. So uh, what really matters is uh, how you live your life. And even if you are a bit negative when you die, obviously negative thoughts are bad karma. But if you have lived well, uh, you still may end up judging yourself reasonably well when you die. So it really depends on your overall life, uh, not just on the negativity of your mental states. Uh. But ideally, yes, it is much better to develop a positive mind, uh, much greater chance of being reborn in a good state if your mind is positive so uh, even though we cannot say for certain what's going to happen to this fellow it is much better if you can develop a positive mindset so when you are dying it's a bit like you are meditating right when you meditate you just feel peaceful you just let go you just enjoy the good company you think yay i've lived a good life yeah okay now the time for me to move on to a good state afterwards and you kind of just encourage yourself and so that's the ideal way of uh, coming to the end. Uh, make sure that when you die, that you have good company. Huh? Yeah, that people around you are positive. Huh? That they are kind of uh, cheering you on, telling you a few jokes, maybe <laughs> a few jokes about dying. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, just to kind of cheer you up on your, on, you know, at the very last point. It's actually one of the things that we can always do for people when they're dying. Is that we can. Um, uh, at the deathbed, we can be there with them, we can tell them about some of their good qualities. Uh, yeah, very often we're not very good at kind of telling each other about our good qualities, but tell them when they're dying that actually, you know, uh, you've been a really good friend. Uh, I really appreciate you. Uh, you have no idea the kind of, you know, how meaningful your friendship has been to me. Uh, and uh, these other the things that you have done that I really appreciate. Uh, and then people feel a kind of warmth in their heart uh, because of that. And that's very useful uh, when you are during going through the dying process. So. All right. As a Buddhist, uh, what should I do when there is a family conflict, and neither side wants to forgive the other, and there are big egos involved? And many thanks for your great teachings. Sir. Uh, what you should do, you should uh, see. You should first of all look if there is anything you can do. <laughs> so you should uh, ask yourself whether you know you can do anything. Maybe you can ask for forgiveness uh, first of all, even if you're not really involved in a conflict. You ask for forgiveness anyway because that is like a good example for everyone else. Uh, so you say, "Okay, sorry about anything that I may I may have done." Yeah, and I I apologize and please forgive me for these things, and then see what happens. Uh, Sometimes you just have to, as the Buddha says, that the one who forgives the first, uh, who is the wise person? Sorry, the one who asks for forgiveness first, uh, who is the wise person? uh. So um, see if you can do something, lead by example, even if you're not entirely involved in that conflict. uh. Um, In the end, uh, so you you judge to the best of your ability if there's anything you can do. uh. Um, tell one side about the good qualities. On the other side, yes, I remember. But remember, actually, there are good things on this other side here. Yeah, don't you know? There's all these beautiful things to look at. Uh, why not we focus on those instead? Uh, try to kind of get the conversation going in the right direction. Uh, but very often, some of these conflicts are very frozen and very stale, and it's actually very hard to resolve them. Very often, uh, and sometimes the best thing to do is not to try to resolve it. Uh, if someone feels that you are trying to resolve it for them, uh, then they may actually they may, may make them more stubborn. Uh, yeah, because they are in denial or they, you know, don't want to listen or whatever. Uh, but the moment you show that you don't actually care anymore, uh, that may actually be the time uh, when they really change and they may actually want to find a solution because suddenly they may feel that well, if no one cares, uh, maybe we have to be to do something about this. Uh, So sometimes the best thing to do is not to care, just to let go uh, and show that this is your problem, not my problem, uh, and then see what happens from there. Uh, And then when you let go like that, suddenly opportunities may re-arise where you can do things. Uh, Suddenly an opportunity arises. Someone says something uh, and then the chance is there to actually um, give some input uh, which may work. Uh, But don't be too um, uh, you know, don't to be too attached to resolving this kind of conflicts? Uh, Because uh, if you are, that is often detrimental to the solution. Uh, Sometimes letting go. yeah, Letting go, letting go, letting go. Everything is about letting go in Buddhism. (laughs) All right. Can you explain the difference between craving and desire? Thank you kindly. Well, I would would recommend you go to the Oxford English Dictionary and look up craving, look up desire and tell the difference. (laughs) So I guess what you mean is that from a Buddhist point of view, how do we differentiate between these words? And I would say that craving is a strong form of desire. If you crave, usually it has this feeling of something quite strong. It's like sometimes we use the word thirst. The word tanha in Pali, the literal meaning, is actually thirst. And thirst is another word, also in English, for craving. If you're thirsting for something, it's a powerful, strong desire inside of you. And so craving, and I think the Buddha used that word for a reason, because most of the cravings in life are quite strong desires. And even an arahant will have some desires remaining yeah, the Arahant will eat. Yeah, and you can only eat if you have desire. You cannot eat without desire. You know, the Arahant wakes up in the morning, they have to get out of bed. You can't get out of bed without desire. You have to move your bodies. There's some motivating things left in the Arahant. Uh, uh, so that is also a kind of desire. And the Pali word usually for that is the word Chanda. Chanda is a it's a positive desire. Yeah, For example, you have the, the four Idipadas, the four uh, kind of... Um, Uh, steps to spiritual power, uh, yeah, one of the 37 factors of awakening, uh, and one of them is called Chanda Samadhi, it's a samadhi or the stillness driven by coming from desire, uh, because you have to have some desire to meditate, you have to at least sit down, yeah, you have to come here or whatever. If you don't come here, if you don't sit down, uh, no meditation is going to happen. So some degree of desire is needed initially to get you started, then you give that up uh, when the mind becomes very peaceful. uh. So, that is, I would say, the difference between Tanha and Chanda, or desire and, uh, and craving. Yeah. Something like that. Huh? All right. So, dear Venerable Sir, are there references to Pacheka Buddhas in the suttas? Yes, there are some references. Not many. Pacheka Buddhas are not very important in the suttas. Uh, they do occur occasionally. Um, uh, usually they occur in places that are not very important, like lists of factors and that sort of thing, things that don't really have a very authentic feel to them. Uh, uh, there's one sutta in the Majimanikaya, Majimanikaya number 116 maybe, uh, called the... Uh, what is it called again now? Ah, it's called uh, uh, Isigili, Sutta. Isigili Sutta, yeah, and that sut Isigili, literally means the swallowing up of the Isi. The Isi are the Rishis, yeah, the sages, the holy people in India, and uh, so the swallowing up. Either it means swallowing up of the Rishis, uh, or it means the hill of the Rishis. Uh. <laughs> Maybe the hill of the Rish is a bit more likely than the swallowing up of the Rishis. But I think one of the reasons why it's called the the swallowing up is because this mountain would swallow up these Rishis. They would walk into it or something like that. I think the hill of the Rishis is more likely. It's a very strange sutta. It's a sutta. It just says, okay, this is the hill of the Rishis. And it gives a long list of names of all these Pacheka Buddhas. And then the end of the sutta. What do you make of that right does it really what does it mean what is the point of having a sutta like that uh, I don't really know maybe it's to inspire people or something uh, but uh, the inspiration really should be with the Buddha and not these Pacheka Buddhas uh, they don't do all that much to uh, to help us that's kind of why they are Pacheka Buddhas uh, so there are references but they are marginal Pacheka Buddhas are not important in Buddhism uh, don't practice the path to, to become a Pacheka Buddha become an Arahant, right? That's what the Buddha said. So follow the advice of the Buddha. Don't follow other kind of random advices. Okay. Ajahn, could you lead us on the four-element meditation, please? Uh, Okay, we shall see what happens. Uh, And I'll put that to one side uh, and uh, see how things go. Dear Venerable Sir, if I am not mistaken, the suttas state that the Buddha was aspiring to seek liberation in many lives prior to the life in which he awakened. If so, wouldn't that be a major factor that motivated him to seek liberation?" Um, no, the suttas do not say that. Now, you have to be very clear what you mean by suttas, right? So you have to be very, make a very clear distinction. Now, you may think that the jatakas are suttas, but they are not suttas. You may think that the commentary to the Dhammapada is suttas, but no, it's a commentary, it's not the suttas. You have to be very clear about where you get your information. Get your information from the wrong place, then you might think these kind of things. So uh, there is no reference in the suttas of the Buddha aspiring to become a Buddha in the future. That is only found in places like the Jatakanidana, which is the... Uh, introduction to the Jataka Tales, uh, or it is found in places like the Chariyapitaka. Chariyapitaka is one of the books of the Kudakarnikaya, which talks about the conduct of the Buddha in past lives. Uh, it's found Buddha Vangsa is the, uh, another book there, which Buddha Vangsa is the sequence of Buddhas in the past. Uh, and this, these are the places where you find this idea that the Buddha aspired in past lives to be a Buddha. That is not found in the suttas. The Buddha doesn't mention that. Uh. And so the interesting question is, how do these ideas arise? Where do they come from? Who has the right to say these things if the Buddha didn't say these things? And the answer, I think, is that when the Buddha passed away, or when the Buddha was close to passing away, one of the things you find, for example, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, that is the discourse on the Buddha's passing away, yeah all the things that happened, all the events in the Buddha's life, uh, on his last journey starting in Rajagaha, the capital of the Magadan Empire or Magadan country, walking all the way to Kushinara, where he eventually he died. Now, that sutta, you can already see creeping in quite a number of what we call strange phenomena things that seem to contradict what you find elsewhere, uh, things that don't really seem all that rational, like the Buddha listening to Mara. Mara comes to the Buddha, says the Buddha, or oh, please, uh, Master Gautama, uh, now is the time for you to pass away. And the Buddha says, yes. Uh, what? <laughs> Mara asks you, and then you say, yes, what is going on? This is really strange. Why does the Buddha suddenly listen to Mara at the last time of his life when he has rejected Mara up until then? And it sounds like a story that has been made up to explain why the Buddha died. But then there are other stories about why the Buddha died. There's also the uh, what is called the Sukaramadhava. Sukaramadhava is the kind of the the Sukkaram is like pig you, the Sukkara Madhava. Madhava, no one is quite sure what it means, but it's some kind of meat that the Buddha is supposed to have ate close to his passing away, it made him very sick. And then he passed away. Another one is where the Buddha relinquishes the life faculty. So it's like three different reasons almost, or, or, or more. but The Buddha getting old, just getting old, There's like another one. There's all these different reasons why the Buddha passed away. Yeah? And it's not entirely clear which one is correct, or if they're all correct, or none of them is correct. And it's all very confusing yeah? So you start to see, as you get into the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, you get towards the end of the Buddha's life, uh, that strange things start to happen. Uh, yeah? They start to... Uh, look at the Buddha in a new way. Uh. And one of the reasons why this is happening is because when the Buddha passes away, that is when people start to ask, who was the Buddha? Uh. Up until then, the Buddha has always been there. You don't really need to ask these questions so much. They were happy with it. Uh. But once the Buddha is gone, uh, the, uh, the, um, the degree to which they missed the Buddha would have been enormous uh. Imagine if you are a Buddhist at that time, and the Buddha passes away. This is the person who has always been around. The person who has always um, answered every question that you needed to know. The person who has kind of resolved every conflict in the community. Someone who's a towering figure at that time. And suddenly this buddha is gone you can imagine the degree to which you're missing the buddha it is very hard to take and because it is so hard to take all these questions start to arise you read the maha oh people are crying yeah people are rolling on the ground it's kind of very it's very um, the way it is uh, described is very sort of uh, imaginative people are rolling on the ground back and forth holding their tummies uh, where what, where is the buddha what happened <laughs> that kind of thing yeah it's very sort of uh, <laughs> Interesting. And, and uh, so they can see it's a shock to the Buddhist community. And of course, one of the things that happens then, they start to ask these questions. Uh, where did it come from? Uh, and I think a lot of the Buddha legend, the Buddha mythology arises from that kind of inquiry, from the missing of the Buddha. Uh, and that's how you get the Jataka tales. Uh, that is how you get this Buddha buddha mythology of you know, the Buddha leaving the household life, riding off on the Kantaka, the horse, uh, and all of these kind of things that actually have no basis and the suttas actually contradicts the suttas and so i saying that this whole idea of the buddha practicing in past lives actually contradicts the suttas there are some suttas where they do talk about the buddha's past lives and the buddha seems to have been anti-buddhist yeah he met previous buddhas and he kind of dismissed them as you know dodgy characters or whatever <laughs> yeah so he was almost anti-buddhist So how could he have been practicing for the awakening? It doesn't make any sense. He had wrong view, he didn't know what he was doing. So I say, no, this is not what happened. What happened is that the Buddha really You know, he came into this existence, he obviously had accumulated many good qualities, that is true, but he hadn't accumulated those good qualities specifically because he was practicing a path. It was more like random. It's like if you look out in the population around you in the world, some people have good qualities, some have bad qualities. It's not because... The, the ones with good qualities are all Buddhist. No, it's just because this is a bit random in society. Sometimes you happen on doing things in the right way and you get good qualities. Sometimes you happen on doing things the wrong way, you have bad qualities. So the Buddha to be, he happened to have practiced good things, so he was ready for awakening in that particular life. Anyway, that's how I see it, and I I think there is no basis for all of this uh, later mythology, and I think it detracts from the whole idea of the Buddha, because it makes the Buddha into some kind of superhuman thing, superhuman kind that doesn't really relate all that well to uh, other people. Okay. Dear Ashwam Ramali, can you? Please explain the first precept about abstaining from taking life and how we can take the five precepts without being vegetarians, i.e. meat consumption. Not being vegetarian creates demand and conditions for killing. Thank you. Uh, Yes, so uh, you you can take them because the biggest problem with uh, taking life is the actual intention to destroy life. Uh, That is the biggest problem. When you have that intention to destroy life, at that moment, your mind is in a very bad state. Uh, I want to kill this living being. Uh, That is a very powerful and negative thing in your mind. Uh, When you buy meat, you don't have the intention to kill. her. Yes, there are negative consequences from eating meat, Uh, and I think... It is a good thing to be a vegetarian. I think it's wonderful. Please be vegetarian. Uh, But what is worse is that specific intention to want to destroy life. Uh, That is more troublesome or more dangerous uh, than buying meat in a shop and then eating it. You don't have that specific intention. Uh, That meat would have gone to someone else if you didn't buy it. Uh, So uh, I agree with you to some extent. And I think also the fact is that, of course, in the present day, things are quite different from the time of the Buddha. And for that reason, there may be many good reasons now to be vegetarian. So if you are able to do so, please do so. But don't judge other people if they choose not to be vegetarian. Do things privately because you think it is right. I know some amazing people in the world who are not vegetarian, who are probably far more advanced than anyone else. The Buddha was not vegetarian, right? He's pretty awesome. Person. I'm not sure if that is a disrespectful to say, but it's pretty kind of uh, amazing character. So uh, don't take these things too. Don't be judgmental of others uh, just because you think it is right to be vegetarian. That's that's always a dangerous thing, eh, because then you are destroying your own happiness and destroying your own progress on the path as a consequence. So. Okay. <clears throat> Venerable Ajahn, please explain on the four different things, objects, we can contemplate in meditation. Kaya, Vedana, Chitta and Dhamma. How can we condition the mind in a positive way by understanding Vedana? Uh, we can use this in meditation practice. So these are the four. These are the Satipatthanas. These are the, uh, the mindfulness meditations. Uh, yeah, mindful, The um, or sometimes called the uh, foundations of mindfulness. Actually, that's a bad translation. More like the establishings or the applications of mindfulness. So, and the best place to understand this is to go to the Anapanasati Sutta, the Sutta on the Mindfulness of Breathing. That is the best explanation for how these things are to be developed. And uh, the way to develop that according to the Anapanasati Sutta is simply by watching the breath. And as you watch the breath, as the breath meditation develops, you go through all of these four Satipatthanas. Kaya, Vedana, Chitta and Dhamma. They all happen through the breath meditation. That is the only place in the Suttas where the Buddha says specifically that you fulfill the Satipatthana practice by watching the breath all you have to do. So how does that happen? Well, what happens is that you watch the breath first of all, in breath, out breath, uh, uh, long breath, short breath, the whole breath, calming down the breath. That's kaya nupassana because the breath is one type of kaya, one type of body. Then as the meditation becomes more profound, you start to feel joy in the mind uh, and you feel happiness. Then you f- calm down the joy and the happiness. Uh, that is vedana Nupassana, because it's all about feeling, experiencing feelings, right? Positive feelings. Uh, now, one of the beautiful things about the vedanānupassana, the feeling contemplation, as it is found in the Anapanasati Sutta, the mindfulness of breathing Sutta, it's all about positive feelings. Uh, it's all about enjoying yourself, uh, and you find out by reading the suttas more broadly by. St- coming away a little bit from the Satipatthana Sutta. If you just stay with the Satipatthana Sutta, you're never going to have enough information to really understand what meditation is about. Uh, This tendency in the Buddhist world to focus exclusively on the Satipatthana Sutta is actually quite dangerous because it makes your idea of meditation very narrow. You need to widen out your understanding of the Suttas and how the Buddha taught these things. Uh, and what happens when you do that is you find that there's no need to watch all this pain. You go on certain meditation retreats, they tell you, watch the pain. Oh, but it's, I can't bear it. Watch the pain. But it's too much. Watch the pain. And it's kind of they don't give you any alternatives. And according to the suttas, no need to watch those painful feelings. And the reason is because painful feelings can be understood through their absence You don't have to contemplate them directly. This is another misunderstanding of these teachings. Uh, You can contemplate them through the absence. Uh, When something is gone, in fact, it is far more powerful to contemplate things that are not there, because then you can understand them fully, just like the tadpole in the water can only understand water when it emerges from the water. In the same way, you can only understand painful feelings fully when you emerge from those painful feelings. Uh, So do, The mindfulness of breathing, experience the joy and happiness after you come out. Then ask yourself, what was going on? Why was I so happy? Why was I so content? Why was the mind so still? Okay, absence of painful feeling was one reason. Now you start to understand what these painful feelings are, why they are so problematic. You don't really need to contemplate their presence at all. So isn't that really great? It's like when you see that in the suttas it's like an eye-opener why am i watching all these painful feelings for her don't watch those painful feelings okay i'm going to sit more comfortably from now on i'm going to sit on a nice chair i'm going to have a nice meditation bench i'm going to stretch and move my legs if necessary i'm going to lean against the wall all of these kind of things i'm going to start enjoying my meditation for once please enjoy your meditation yeah don't make it into some kind of traumatic experience This is true, right? Many people make meditation into a trauma. We have enough traumas already here. Withdraw from the other. Don't make meditation into something terrible that makes life even more miserable. Uh, The purpose of the spiritual path is to enhance the quality of our life, not to detract from the quality of our life. Uh, Then you keep on meditating even deeper. And there comes a point in a meditation where the mind and the body starts to disappear. The senses start to disappear. And you get these things we call the samadhi nimittas, the lights in the mind, these kind of things. This is really the chitta nupasana. Chitta means that the body is fading away. The mind is coming into the foreground, even more blissful, even more peaceful. And then when you eventually... Come to the end of all of this, you come out of your meditation, you think back on what's been happening, you contemplate anicca, viraga, nirodha, patanisaga, These are the four things you contemplate at the end of anapanasati meditation anicca, impermanence, viraga, fading away, nirodha, cessation, patinisika, relinquishing or giving up. Once you contemplate that, that is when you're doing the Dhamma nupasana. Yeah, This is where you get insight into the qualities and the states of the mind. Everything happens through mindfulness of breathing that's all you have to do huh makes it so simple huh makes it easy huh yeah don't doesn't kind of complicate things too much we can do other things we can what we can do the 31 parts of the body huh not the 32 parts right only the 31 parts yeah leave out that number 32 it is not in the suttas. <laughs> it's true, actually. It's not in the sutta. You can do the four element contemplation if you like. Yeah, yeah it is there in the uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta. But the basic way of doing Satipatthana is to watch the breath. All right. Okay, dear Ajahn. Thank you for your deep teachings. Where is the Buddha now? Okay, so your job is to find the Buddha within yourself, right? That the potential within yourself, that is where the Buddha is now. So you uncover that potential, and then you find the Buddha. Then you will know everything you need to know about the Buddha right there. So discover this for yourself, because this is discoverable on this Buddhist path, where the Buddha is, what the Buddha is. The Buddha says in the suttas that... uh, uh, you don't know who the Buddha is by seeing the Buddha. You know who the Buddha is by seeing the Dhamma. When you see the Dhamma, when you understand his teachings by direct insight, then you know who the Buddha is. Then you know where the Buddha is. Then you know why the Buddha is and you know how the Buddha is. All these questions in the world get answered right there by seeing the Dhamma. That's really what you do. And then you know for yourself. And you don't need, you know, some. You don't know me anyway. If I tell you where the Buddha is, what are you going to do with it? Maybe I'm completely deluded. I don't, (laughs) you know, it's not going to be very useful for you. So check it out for yourself. That's what I recommend. All right. Sorry about that. That's. uh, (laughs) Okay. Dear Abdan, why is there a misunderstanding in politics in the Dhamma? Uh, verse uh, very demoralizing for the lay people. I would have thought. That the Buddha would have encouraged everyone to walk the path irrespective of gender, caste, etc. So, when Ajahn Brahm is promoting bhikkhuni ordination, why is he considered a rebel and expelled from the Sangha? Can't understand why this happens when wisdom is around. Please explain Ajahn with much gratitude. First of all, he has not been expelled by the Sangha. It is just disagreements. And so they said, well, we don't want to ordain bhikkhunis, you want to, okay, maybe best we separate. So, you separate, and this is life. You separate. I mean, life is full of these kind of separations, and maybe it is for the good. Yeah, sometimes you disagree about things. Okay, so then you start. We do things in our place. We other people do things over there. actually, I think it's a good thing. Sometimes you disagree about things in a fundamental way. Does it doesn't make sense to hang out with each other if you have major disagreements. Probably doesn't. Right? Why is it that everyone here hangs out with Buddhists and not with Muslims? Your closest friends are Buddhists, not Muslims, right? Why is that? Well, the reason is because you have a different outlook. You look at the world in a different way. Why are, you know, Why don't you hang out with murderers? It's because they are Papa Mitta. They're not really working in the same way. When One of the nice things that you find in the suttas, the Buddha says that people tend to hang out with people they resemble. They have similar kind of qualities with them. So someone who is a good meditator hangs out with other good meditators. Somebody who is virtuous hangs out with somebody else who is virtuous. Someone who has this kind of view hangs out with other people of that kind of view, and so it is natural sometimes that we separate. It is no big deal, yeah. And so in Perth we are very happy. Actually, I'm quite content not being part of those particular monasteries. Yeah, why? Why would I want to be part of those monasteries? It's irrelevant. It is you just. It's, doesn't matter. Yeah, it is just you choose your friends uh, according to what seems right and appropriate at any particular time. Uh, you can never be friends with everyone in the world anyway. It's just impossible. Uh, and it's okay. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Sometimes you go different ways. Perfectly okay. Uh, that's how I see it. Uh, I Sometimes I think lay people are much more concerned about this than the monastics. Uh, for us, okay, <laughs> these things happen. Uh, you know. <laughs> so just uh, don't take it too seriously. I think it's just... Uh, life happening. Life is like this. <clears throat> Dear Venerable Sir, as consciousness does not arise when an arahant's body breaks up, is it a case of the lights going out, so to speak? Uh, yes, I think that's a good way of putting it, the lights going out. In fact, that is precisely the uh, the um, metaphor or the simile used by the Buddha in the suttas. Yeah, there You have the bhikkhuni, who, uh, who, uh, who, which bhikkhuni was that? Uh, one of the famous bhikkhunis. Uh, and uh, she was meditating, uh, and as she was meditating the window was open, the candle was on, the gust of wind came, the candle blew out. And at that moment she became an arahant. Uh, yeah, kind of the candle going out. Uh, this is nibbana, that's why we translate nibbana as extinguishment, uh, because it is like the, the flame going out. Uh, that's quite literally the lights going out, isn't it? Uh, flame going out, the lights going out, it's the same thing here. So, uh, yes, when you turn off consciousness, yes, you can see the light going out. Uh, but the light, remember, is painful. Uh, so when the light goes out, yay, the light going out. Uh, actually, never get a chance to say that because the lights go out, but uh, <laughs> that's kind of the idea. You're looking forward to it. Uh, a famous verse on the... Uh, Teragata Vindabasariputta, uh, he says that being an Arahant is like being a workman waiting for his wages. Uh, you've been working really hard on this path, uh, yeah, and now you have finally reached the destination uh, and just this gap from the moment in Arahant till you pass away, uh, that time you have to wait for your wages, and your wages come uh, when you pass away. Uh. So, yes, that's a good way of putting it. Uh. Dear Ajahn, is our choices, the sum total of habits and comic forces. Uh, so our choices that you make uh, in the uh, here and now, uh, there will be a sum total of your habits, that's true. Uh, uh, comic forces will also have an input yeah because the comma from the past will decide uh, how you feel in the present. so that will influence your uh, choices. But it's not just that. Uh, because your habits is only one side of your personality. Another side of your personality is the input you're getting in the present. So you have the kamma and the habits coming from the past conjoined with the input you have in this life and in the here and now. And that input you have here and now is also very important. If you're listening to the suttas, reading the word of the Buddha, meditating, whatever, that will also affect the choices that you make. So all of these things coming together. So Buddhism is not fatalistic. Buddhism doesn't say that your future is already fixed. No, it isn't, because you you have the ability to readjust things depending on the input that happens in this life. So all the habits from the past are very powerful huh? and all you will find that very often you succumb to those habits. Uh, the anger will arise at certain times because of certain habits. Uh, the desires arise because of certain habits. Uh, yeah, the, all of these mental states are there because of habits from the past. Uh, still, you can redirect your life. You can change your life in a new direction because of the things that come in now. Huh? And that is what we need to do. Huh? So you should always stop. You should never kind of make the habits your excuse. If you do that, you are that's, you, you, that's going to be very problematic for you. So you should always stop and ask, what should I really choose now? What is the right way? Let me be wise about this. Let me not just follow my habits. How can I improve on my life? How can I make a better choice? Stop. Wait. Wait for the intuition to come that tells you what is the right thing to do. Don't make choices when your mind is defiled. This is one of the biggest problems in life. A defiled mind makes bad choices. Uh, Wait till your mind is reasonably clear and pure. That is when you should make choices in your life. Uh, When the mind is pure and clear, that allows you to see things in the right way. Uh, Dear Pirajan, you talk today about reducing sense of self. I understand non self uh, on intellectual basis also feel body disappearing during meditation, but the sense of self is very much intact. Uh, doesn't have don't have access to jhanas to get insight. So how to reduce our egos? The best way to reduce the ego is just to be kind. Because a lot of the ways that the sense of self expresses itself, it expresses itself in negative ways. So, for example, when your sense of self is challenged, you may get upset. Yeah, because someone says something to you that is bad or negative or painful, you get upset because of that, and that is your sense of self that is being challenged. So, if you make a choice or or make it a uh, Um, Determination, maybe determination is the wrong word, you make an aspiration to be kind at all times. Uh, Actually, you're no longer allowing that sense of self to express itself through anger, through negative conduct. Uh, Even with your thinking mind, Yeah, you make an aspiration to think kind thoughts at all times. Uh, Again, you're not allowing the ego to express itself in bad ways. Uh, so the more you practice the Noble Eightfold Path, starting with virtue, with right conduct, then going to this right effort on the path, purifying your, your mind, the more you do that, uh, the less scope you're giving to the ego to express itself. Uh, that is the best way to overcome the ego. Huh? because it's kind of natural. You don't have to really think it through because once you start to think how to get rid of the ego, the ego will enmesh itself in the thinking and it will justify all kinds of things. Uh, so just practice the path, practice metta, compassion, kindness, generosity, peace, all of these beautiful things, and that in itself uh, will reduce your ego, guaranteed. Uh, that is the best way. Oops. Okay, dear Ajahn, would you please explain the different similarities between Anatta and Sunyata in the Buddha's teachings? Um, anatta and Sunyata are basically synonymous in the Buddha's teachings. Uh, anatta means no core. Sunyata means emptiness. Yeah, non-self emptiness is the same thing. Emptiness means that there's nothing inherent in there. It is all empty at the end of the day. It's just layers upon layers of impermanent phenomena. And as you peel back those impermanent phenomena there's nothing left eventually at all apart from those empty phenomena so this is really they are very closely related to each other the buddha says in the suttas that the reason we use the word sunyata is because things are precisely empty of a self and empty of what belongs to a self in other words it is basically non-self Sunyata is also used in the suttas as a way of meditation practice. Uh, yeah? And uh, the, uh, This is what you find in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length sayings number 121, the Chula Sunyata Sutta, Majjhima 122, the Maha Sunyata Sutta, the shorter and the longer discourse on emptiness. Uh, and the shorter one, it starts off by using the perception of emptiness uh, in a gradual way to give up things. Uh, so, if, for example, it starts off by saying that if you are in the forest, uh, then you have no perception of the city. You know, the noise of the city, the elephants, the horses, or actually today maybe say cars and trains and trams and whatever. There's not too many elephants right here in Melbourne. Uh, it would be nice to have elephants, wouldn't it, instead of all these cars. Uh, it would be like, you know, like they um, have in these processions in Sri Lanka and this kind of thing, that's really kind of... Much more kind of endearing to have an elephant than to have kind of these motorized vehicles. Anyway, getting a bit sidetracked now. So um, it is empty of all the noises of the city. Huh? Yeah. So you are then indulging in that. You're enjoying the emptiness of the. Uh, it is empty of those things. Uh, and there's a certain perception of emptiness in the forest uh, based on the idea of the forest. Uh. And in a way, you can even bring that up right here. Yeah, We're here at, at the Buddha Loka Center. Uh, and when you sit down, you can kind of bring up the idea of being separated from the world. Uh, bring up the idea that you are in the forest almost, that there are away. And sometimes when it gets quite peaceful, you don't even know that you are in the city anymore. Uh. So that's kind of a nice way of doing things, pretending you are in the forest, uh, the concrete jungle uh, <laughs> of the world uh. And then that sutta goes on, yeah. Then it goes on. The next thing is that you then have the perception of earth, uh, yeah. The perception of earth. It usually refers to the earth kasina, the totality of earth. You give up the perception of forest. You reduce it down, uh, and then you make it simpler and simpler and simpler. Uh, and every time you do that, you're emptying out something. You're moving towards emptiness uh, until you attain very profound meditation on this basis. Uh. So this is one way of doing that. And then down the track uh, this will then lead to insight uh, that uh, you see yourself as completely empty of any kind of core any kind of substance uh, and that is kind of the highest kind of emptiness uh, insight uh, and what you really want to ultimately achieve on this path uh. in mahayana buddhism the idea of emptiness is a bit different uh, but uh, this is how you find it in the early sutras <clears throat> Dear Arjan, is it safe to practice by oneself when one starts experiencing deeper states of samadhi? How and when do we ask for guidance? Many thanks, Venerable. Um, it is usually quite safe to practice by yourself. Uh, the time when it is not safe is if your mind starts to go a bit funny. Uh, so make sure you monitor yourself. Make sure you don't push yourself if you start to feel uncomfortable. Make sure that your mind is in a nice and balanced state. If you feel an imbalance in the mind, that you start to, if you start to feel a little bit crazy, don't carry on. If you start to get angry or strong desires in a meditation, okay, slack off a little bit. Make sure your mind is in a good place, yeah that is the most significant thing the worst kind of meditation encouragement is when you hear think people saying things like oh i'm feeling really terrible i'm going crazy okay just carry on just watch the craziness Uh, and what happens when you do that you go crazy yeah Happens to many people, right? It's quite common for people to go psychotic. I wouldn't say common, but it happens that people go psychotic on meditation retreats. And that is because usually because the guidance is bad. If you start to feel a little bit crazy, don't carry on. Stop. Get out, open your eyes, start walking around. Sometimes the mind can go into some very strange spaces. Don't go there, wait. When the mind is ready, come back to do meditation again. As long as you keep a very simple advice like that, you cannot really go wrong. Make sure you enjoy the meditation practice, that you don't force yourself to sit with too much pain. That can also drive you crazy eventually. Yeah, so enjoy, have a good time, feel at ease, make meditation a bonus in your life, something that enhances your life, doesn't detract from it, as I said before. Then you can never really go wrong. Uh, samadhi is not dangerous uh, if you treat it in this way. Uh, of course, it can still be helpful to get some guidance because as you get closer and closer to samadhi, you may not know exactly what you should do. Usually, the guidance is very simple anyway. You'd be told, "Okay, just relax, enjoy, focus on you know the uh, the nimitta or whatever." Uh, something very simple. Uh, but it can be useful to speak to someone who's very um, experienced with these kind of things. Someone like Ajahn Brahm, who is a super-duper experienced uh, samadhi meditator here. So please carry on. Please enjoy, and you will be okay. All right, so we have the last question for tonight. Dear Ajahn, is there any hope for the late bloomers? Uh, My body is too frail and crumbly to practice. My mind clouded and aging. Uh, Feel so discouraged that neither the body nor the mind is strong enough to practice. Uh, and unfavorable life situation doesn't help either. Please advise. Many thanks, venerable. Please advise. Just You don't even have to do much meditation if you don't want to. If you do meditation, make sure you do... Just think of it as relaxation. Everyone in the world can relax, right? Sometimes relaxation just means lying down on your bed and staring at the ceiling. Don't even have to stare at the ceiling if that doesn't work. You can close your eyes lying on your bed. And sometimes you just relax on your bed. If you fall asleep, it's okay. If you don't fall asleep, just allow your mind to kind of go through its paces, right? Just enjoy lying there. Do some really, really simple things. Don't think of meditation as some kind of exercise that you have to do, but simply as an enjoyment of the peace and quiet, not doing anything. Allow your mind to be crazy if it wants to be crazy. Usually if you allow it to be crazy, it becomes less crazy. (laughs) Isn't that nice? All you have to do is allow it to be crazy and it becomes less crazy already. Make sure that you do all the other things on the path. The other things on the path are more fundamental to the practice than meditation practice. be kind be caring be generous say kind things to everyone don't be too fault-finding see the good in other people around you have compassion because everyone is hurting when you start to sometimes we focus too much on our own hurt we think that we are the only person in the world who's hurting everyone is hurting just like us Remember that, look at other people with kindly eyes, with eyes of compassion, because everyone needs that compassion in the world. These are the things that you can always develop, regardless of how old you are. Even on your deathbed you can develop these kind of things. So there's heaps of things that you can do. Lots. Your whole life is filled with things that you can do, if you think about these things in the right way. And Gradually see the world, see people in this way, and as you see people in this way that people are lost in the delusions, they are lost in their habits, they are trapped in their personalities, sometimes they want to be good, but they can't be good because the momentum from the past is so strong, they're actually unable to do what they deep down know they should be doing. And when you see that, you feel compassion. You think, wow, this is just so unfortunate. You want to be a good person, but you can't even be that because it's so hard for you. And you want to help them. You want to say, it's okay. It's fine. Listen, if you're not so good, it's okay. But think about this way. Look at the world in this way. Maybe you can do something kind. Come to me, to Buddha Loka. We'll offer some nice things together here. Whatever it is, yeah, you start to look at people. You just want to give them a hug because someone who is bad, they would just they just need a hug, right? To feel more appreciated in the world. Maybe they feel left out. Maybe they had bad parents. Who knows what their background is about? Then you start to have compassion for people. Give them a pat on the back. You're okay. It's okay that you have these qualities. No one is perfect in the world. And It is fine. And in this way, you start to really. Give people the benefit of the doubt, yeah, because there's always that benefit of the doubt that should be used. Uh, and uh, you start to build up good qualities in yourself. It's weird. You have to actually look at other people in the right way to build up good qualities in yourself. Uh, that is the weird thing huh? Yeah? It is not just about having metta towards yourself. Sometimes I feel that we become too self-centered. Uh, have metta towards myself, metta towards myself. Okay, Forget about yourself for a while, right? Uh, Okay, it's good occasionally to have met that to yourself. But sometimes we do too much of this kind of stuff. Uh, instead, have met that to other people. And when you have met that to other people, you also will be the beneficiary of that. Uh. So, yeah, never give up. There's lots of things you can do. Uh, and just enjoy the whole path. And you will be uh, uh, good, as they say here in Australia. I'm Australian now, so i got to say some of these Australian expressions. So. <laughs> Okay, everyone, so that's all for tonight. So let's just do the uh, Arahang Samma Sambudo together, and I wish you all a marvelous night. May you all sleep really well, come back tomorrow morning, bright and clear, and then we can carry on tomorrow morning. So there you are.